Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back with part two of Young Jerzak. That's what we're going to call it. Uh, if you haven't listened to the first part yet, if you've just joined us, welcome. Uh, there's a first part to this, though, that we aired last week. So go and check that episode out first, or else eh, it'd probably be okay. But either way, chronologically speaking, the second half of the conversation is this week. So, uh, so go back and listen to the first part, and this is part two of my conversation with uh, William Paul Young and Bradley Jerzak. And so, welcome. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the first part, and uh, that's why you're here for the second part. But uh, if not, we'll have new episodes in two weeks. So there you go. Either way, thank you for joining us. Uh, this week, we have uh, the same artist on again, Morningsiders. So if you like their music, go check them out, support them, follow them. All the links are in the show notes. If you uh, would like to support us, though, and you have the means to do so, consider joining our Patreon family. Uh, you can find the link to our Patreon through our show notes, and you can also find it on our website, thedeconstructionist.com. You can find that there, as well as a link to our web store where we have t-shirts, we have pint glasses, we have coffee mugs. Uh, we've got a blog on there uh, that we occasionally update. Uh, we've got, what else? Links to our show, our show notes. Links to our social media, so if you want to follow us on social media, and also if you want to shoot us an email, you can do so through there. In addition, if you if you want to support us in the free way, in the, the easy way, uh, the easiest way is just go to iTunes and leave us a nice five-star review and, uh, and tell a friend. That's the easiest way to, uh, to help us grow is by word of mouth, uh, and we appreciate it, so thank you. Uh, either way, we, we appreciate you listening. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. Um, what else? I'm trying to think. I think we covered everything, right? Yeah. All right. Good. Well, let's get to it. Uh, enough said. We did all the uh, intro stuff last week, so let's just get to it. And without further ado, I give you Bradley Jerzak and William Paul Young. One of the things I want to talk to you guys about, though, uh, kind of on the, the same lines here is, and Brad, you talk about this in your writing a little bit, um, and I think this is really important to, to kind of start here. It's, it's how we talk about God and what we mean when we say the word God. Um, and, and I think a lot of this Western view, um, you know, because you guys are originally from Canada, you know, the United States, very similar experience with this very Edwardsian view of this wrathful, angry God that we've been talking about, how much of that is, is, you know, more of a reflection on us and how we view God versus the actual character of God? Oh yeah. I'm, you know, anything we say about God is probably, probably almost just wrong at the outset because <laughs> God is beyond uh, comprehension in, from one angle. I'll, I'll come from a couple angles. So from one angle, we need to be way more agnostic. Um, we need to understand that our conceptions of God are not God, uh, that one of the boxes we've made for God is our conception of God, and that many of these are projections, even, like, you know, he's me, but he's a stronger version of me, a more pure version of me, or he's a, he's he's like a king, but he's like a mega king, or he's uh, he's a male, and but he's like a mega male, and and <clears throat> even even when we use the word being, we're we're kind of shrinking God down to one being among other, among other beings, uh, an an entity or or something like that. And and in the early church, uh, they were they saw the problem with this, and how even most conceptions of God, you might even say, among our people that. Uh, uh, in quotes, uh, that largely the conception of God has been an idol of our own making, and and um, and we can make that that idol out of out of the gems of Scripture. So Irenaeus will say in the second century, "Here's the problem: you've got God, and if you imagine this great statue of a beautiful king made of gems, and it's like we come along and we dismantle. And this can be a problem with um, even it can be the reason for." deconstruction and it can also be a result of deconstruction where we take where we take the image of god apart we reassemble it in the form of a dog 
But because we reassembled it with gems, we have all these scriptures to prove. You see, he is—he looks exactly like this, isn't he beautiful? It's like, well, no, he's not now. He's quite ugly. And so even reassembling the scriptures to come up with our our projected images is pr- pretty ugly. So, so then we'll say pr- some fairly high-minded, maybe too abstract um, things like God is God is not a being. God is beyond being. God is the ground of being, and God is is what being flows from. And God, uh, God is our participation as beings in being. You know stuff like that. And uh, so, so they're tr- what they're trying to do when people like that, talk like that. Uh, Meister Eckhart would be an example. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to be mindful. They're trying to deconstruct the language of God and how that becomes its own container for our own projections. And I think that's a fair project. Um, it's called apophatic theology. And that means thinking about what God is not. <laughs> uh, so, yes, God is a father, but how is he not a father? God is a king, but how is he not a king? And so you're always kind of deconstructing the language so that it doesn't become this this uh, a safe that we you know trap God in. The other side of it is we have now Paul and I are coming from this direction. I know all not all your listeners come from this, but we we actually believe that you know the word became flesh, and that um, to me. Uh, uh, my one access to the very nature of God as eternal love is through Christ crucified and risen. And what I mean by that and why it's important to me is this isn't just a, an abstracted ethereal Christ spirit that permeates everything. This is someone who suffered violence, trauma, death and resurrection. And why that ends up mattering is because it gives meaning to my suffering. And it also says, uh, f- for me, uh, resurrection is more than metaphor, or Christ is not alive and neither will I be. Maybe neither am I now. Um, so I'm looking uh, from this angle of the incarnation is our picture of the wounded God and the one who knows firsthand what I experience and enters it with me in a, in a way that the force can't or universe can't or some logos mind on its own, you know, it, uh, so, um, the, the, the wounds matter in make as a meaning maker in my life. And I'm, what I'm noticing with some of my friends who have gone through a very thorough deconstruction is, um, eventually they're like, Jesus becomes optional. Resurrection becomes metaphorical. It's a nice thing, but and they're like, and at first it's like, wow, I feel so free now because I'm out of those stupid boxes. Um, but now what I'm running into more and more, and, and Nietzsche forecast this a long time ago. He said, and this happened to me yesterday. Another friend, friend came and says, I, I've deconstructed so far now that I've deconstructed my whole life. I, don't, I didn't just lose Jesus. I've lost all my joy and all meaning. It's pointless. And so you, you reach a kind of nihilism. And I'm not saying everyone who deconstructs will, that'll happen to. I'm just, I'm just saying that's a good reason to still have an anchor somewhere that you find reliable in your real experience. And for her, the one, the one connecting point was she remembered a time when she would dance for Jesus. And she feels like the thieves came and stole that from her in the name of what's trendy, I guess. I don't know. So she's going to have to work it out. But does that, am I tracking Paul? Is that, would that? Yeah, yeah you are. I, I think a lot of, when you deconstruct, like you said, you can deconstruct yourself out of, out into oblivion where nothing exists. And, um, and that's, that's no solution. There are things that we know about the nature and character of God, even if our words are insufficient. Um, the, the record of the New Testament describing the life of Jesus, there is lots to glean from there, even though it's insufficient in terms of, you know, but our, our own mental capacities are insufficient. So it's like, so, so what do we look at? And, 
and where do we go? Um, so if there, if there is no personhood in God, then either my personhood is an illusion or it's actually um, something that doesn't matter or worse, it's diabolical. And, and it's how do you ground personhood apart from being created in and out of and for relationship? You know, we are so relationally centered. Why? And, and there is a way to then go from the human experience back to the creator in that sense. And this face-to-face relationship where there is an other involved protects me from the nihilism that Nietzsche talked about. He talked about what? If we have freed ourselves from our son, and now we are searching through the universe for another sun around which to center our lives. And yeah, words are limiting. God limited his very being um, so that we would have access. And that, again, we're saying the same thing. Brad and I both, we look at Jesus going like, all right, from, apart from him, I, I don't know what the moorings of my life are. And, and that's not a fear response. That's just a reasonable one. And, um, and I love the fact that we have four different points of view telling us about the life of Jesus. And then we've got, you know, the epistles that are trying to, trying to go deeply into those, those minds and, and, and deliver to us things that are beautiful and good and right. And... It's, it's amazing how much our own human creation is akin to the things that are right and true and good and beautiful. So it's not like we don't have lots of touch points and touchstones, um, but we can deconstruct ourselves into oblivion, uh, which is, I was there before I was ever dealing with my own crap, you know. I was there philosophically for a while, and um, and nihilism is not a fun place to be. And, um, it's uh, all of a sudden nothing matters and there's no basis for morality. There's no basis for love. There's no basis for a conversation. It's almost as if it's less uh, deconstruction, more just destruction. You know, it's, it's uh, a, a long time ago. Yeah. Demolition. Yes. Demolition. demolition. Just yeah, burning the yeah. whole thing down, throwing the baby out with the bat- bathwater as uh um, Richard Rohr would say, and you know, we, we struggle with that too when we first started and we've always had kind of a love hate relationship with the, the name of our podcast. Uh, I think a lot of people get a very, um, incorrect view of what we mean by that. And so at one point, uh, early on, and, and we have to thank Rob Bell for this cause he threw it out there when we were talking to him about it once, but we put brackets around the D and the E, uh, in the name. So you've got D and construction, you know, as if to say, you know, we're not saying tear it all down, burn, burn the whole thing down. We're saying, you know, maybe examine some of the, the bits and pieces that no longer work. And, uh, but, you know. Yeah, that have become chains for that matter, right? I mean, there is stuff it's, that has to go. But this, I mean, in that sense, Jesus was epic at this, right? Yeah. It's like, well, the whole Hebrew prophetic tradition was kind of doing that, in my view. They were... They were quite um, resistant to the ways that the temple establishment had just become the new pharaoh in town, you know. Yeah, I think, I think the fear, or I think the danger, rather, um, as you said, if, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you end up on the opposite, complete extreme opposite side, you're just creating a new kind of certainty, a new kind of fundamentalism just on the opposite end. Yeah, people, people cannot actually live with no meaning. Yeah, they can they can make the idea of no meaning their meaning, but they're going to make meaning from somewhere. And it's like, so where do you draw meaning from? Where do you draw a sense of identity from? You know, why is it wrong to kill your babies, right? And and 
so, so the human situation is that we're, we're really caught. And the only, the only resolution as a frame of reference is that there has to be meaning. And, uh, and then it's like, so, okay, we've agreed there has to be meaning. Where do we find it? And, and you know, even scientifically and, and uh, in terms of the work that I've done with science, they don't have an answer for why anything exists. You know, they, they can tell me what exists, and they can break it really down as much as they understand it. And now we're getting into quantum stuff that it's like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. You know, and but they can't tell me why anything is here. And uh, as opposed to nothing. And when you, when you get to that place, even in your life, why is there anything here? Then is what's real? Even in my own life, you know, to get to the place where I, I didn't know my, my greatest point of hopelessness was those, that period of time, those days in which I really didn't know if there was anything about me that was actually true. And, and thankfully, relationships kind of rescued me from that abyss and um not that i asked for help <laughs> they just showed up to me in the kindness of a god who's always loved me and and since then now i i knew that a lot of the things that i was questioning actually were true and were good they'd just been so damaged along the way uh, one of the things you know i think we're talking about here uh in terms of like the way that uh, so so often we we view God and the way that we portray Christianity and and just this uh, fear fear based version of it um, you know the shame based version of it seems to always come back to one thing and that's control you know the the human yeah. desire to have control over that which they cannot have control over and um, I want to I want to ask you, uh, Paul. Actually, you had a blog post recently that really hit home for me, uh, where you're talking about this conversation that you had a friend had with a friend who had COVID, and uh, you mentioned your your friend mentions this this panic in relationship to the illusion of control, which I thought was interesting because I myself got COVID back in the early days before we really knew, you know, it, you know how how truly deadly it was, and I, I just remember talking to my therapist at the time and just being really panicked over the whole situation and in terms of how I interacted with my daughter and the people around me, uh, just in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't want, I didn't want to die certainly. And I didn't want to be the cause of anyone else's death either. Um, and, and what it came down to is this conversation with my therapist. You said, you know, your anxiety stems from the fact that you're trying to control something that you have no control over. Not, not to say don't be safe, but like, you know, it seems to be, uh, that seems to be very similar to the way that we approach uh, our faith in Christianity, especially in, in, in the Western church. So I, I would love for you to talk a little well, bit about that because I think it really... Uh, yeah, you know, when you deal with fear, you can either choose the trust of love or control. You don't have a third option. And, and so a, a lot of the most recent work that I have been doing is about exposing that need for control. Conspiracy theories are, are rooted in fear and a need for control. So if we can create compartmentalizations, and you know what? There are people doing really bad things and screwy things in the world. I, I don't doubt that whatsoever. But then we create an identity around you know, our knowledge of that as if it, if our knowledge were actually true. And, um, but you know, you're, you're in a, a year 2020 in which if there's anything, there's been an exposure of the reality that you're not in control and everybody's scrambling. Um, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are scrambling and they're looking for ways to, have a sense of control. And, um, and if, if you don't know who you are, fear will become the basis for your identity, for how you see the truth of who you are. 
and then you're back into competition with everybody else. Um, if you don't realize that the truth of who you are is that you're a child who is well-loved and that you don't have to have control, that that's not necessary. And, um, that, that love has you. So, you know, I talk a lot about future tripping as a, as, a our common mechanism of control. Future tripping is simply the creation of imaginations that don't actually exist. And then all the work it takes to try to protect ourselves from them. Um, so, you know, I don't know about you, but in, in my imagination, I have, I've, I have died a number of times. I've, you know, I've gone to my own funeral. I was pissed off because nobody else cried at my funeral. I, uh, lost everything financially and ended up in a cardboard box under Burnside Bridge alone and nobody cared. And I've imagined, I mean, I imagine conversations with somebody and they're going to say a certain thing and I know they are. And then I'm going to say this and then we're never going to talk to each other. So why even talk to them now? I mean, every single day you are invited to leave presence to go into imaginations that don't exist and grapple with the issue of control. And it's useless. Uh, it's worse than useless. It's counterproductive. It, it, actually, it actually destroys your capacity or diminishes your capacity to hear the truth or to be present to love. And... And so much of what's going on here is absolutely rooted and grounded in fear. And so the, the work is to be present. The work is to not be a future tripper. And so when, when I hear about, you know, three members of our family, a lot more have had COVID, but three that we weren't sure because of their age and things like that, that they were going to survive. Now that's an invitation to already go in future trip, you know already be way down the road it, none of it's real at this point other than the fact that they've been diagnosed with this and yeah they're struggling but they're not dead and and so we're trying to figure out okay when they die you know and it's just like why 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 do we need such mechanisms well it's because as first john says there's no fear in love and the one who fears is not perfected in love. That's not, a, that's not a judgment or a value statement. That's not a demeaning thing for, for John to write. He's saying, look, if to the degree that fear operates in your life, to that degree, it, it can tell you that you don't know yet how much you're loved. And, and love doesn't protect you from, from bad things in this world. It, it but it's, it never leaves you to be alone in it, which fear always does. Fear drives you to, to solitary confinement, you know, where you're alone, because that's one of the basic whispers of fear, is you're alone, nobody else has your back, nobody cares, not really, and you don't have what it takes, and there's not enough to go around. And so, you know, fear then drives our responses. We don't, have a, we don't have the ability to stay present. Grace and joy and peace are always and only present tense. You don't get grace today for things that don't exist. And I don't know how strongly I can say it, um, but... We're designed to live in the presence because this is where God lives. And, and I tell my friends, you know, if, if you can't help yourself, because it took me a while, and I'm not perfect at it yet, to stop future tripping. But I say, if you can't help yourself and you find yourself future tripping, at least stop long enough to invite Jesus to go into your illusion with you at least then you'll know that you're not alone and that will destroy the illusion. Man, I have about 45 other questions for both of you, but we're never going to get to this. <laughs> you guys are too good at this. But uh, 
I, I, w- I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the reason that you guys are together in doing these interviews, which is you guys co-wrote a book together. And I would love for you guys to talk about The Pastor and what brought the two of you together to work on this project, first of all. And second of all, what was the inspiration behind writing a book like this? Because it is very unique. We've, we've done this enough that we have different answers for it by now, like a whole bunch of, I'll say it this way. Um, so first of all, the relationship came first. Yep. And then out of that relationship, we, we had a desire to do another project together. And, and for me, it was the desire to write my first piece of fiction with a good mentor who would help me not be preachy and agenda driven in it. Cause that happens to teachers and theologians who try this path quite often. And so, um, so that's one angle on it. And then another angle on it is really we, we wanted to tell a story based in, um, re, you know, a lot of real-life situations with people who we know who allowed us to use their story to make this authentic to get at two issues. One is there is no one who's irredeemable, and there's no one who's unhealable. And uh, so we, we address that in the in the experience of this horrendous breakdown of a pastor in a psych ward, who's going to have to go through the hell of his own deconstruction and come out the other side, if he can surrender to, to love and to the various means of love that come his way. And uh, so it's pretty, it, it's pretty dark. It's pretty beautiful. Um, but we felt like we've got enough precious moments books out there. Uh, we need to say something that's, that's going to be like, get at people's real stories. Cause when I say God is love, uh, any, if I'm, you know, statistically speaking, someone in the room will ask if God is love, where was he when this happened? Well, this story tells a lot of those stories. And so over to you, Paul, what did I miss there? I don't think you missed anything. Uh, I really, um, also say that the the reason that we're doing this together is, is, is because it gives us an excuse to be together. <laughs> That's beautiful. Exactly. <laughs> so so um, my relationship with Brad is one of the most precious gifts that God has ever given to me. So any chance I get, I get to do anything with Brad, man, it's, it's like uh, a kiss of grace. So, um, we we both have a pretty good sense of who we are. Like, I mean, it, I'm 65, and I, you know, I'm I'm feeling pretty good about having a handle on a lot about what it means to be Paul Young. And uh, so I don't I don't need to write a book to have an identity. I don't need to do something famous. I don't need to have notoriety or platform, any of that kind of stuff. Thank God that those that those things were answered for me before I wrote the shack. Cause if, if I hadn't, it would have killed me. Well, it would have killed the, the part of me that needed to die at that point. But a lot of that had already died, thankfully. So when, when we're working on a project, it's not because we have a perception of what the outcome will be. It's like, ah, inside of what's interesting to Brad and what's interesting to me and our love for human beings and our, and the knowledge that we have of our own histories, as well as our friends who are so hurt inside this world and marginalized and shunted off because they're the, they're some of the weakest in the way the world looks at things is we want to do something that's helpful. Even there's a trigger warning on the book and on the audio version, but that trigger warning is not to keep people away. It's to make, it's an actual invitation. And it's to say, this is going to not be a Sunday school lesson. This is about real life. And, and we have been given the gift of using actual words, phrases, sentences and stories and embedding them into the lives of of the characters in the book and um and yeah we're not the pastor not brad or i are the pastor although there are elements of the of that guy that would resonate with our history and its brokenness no doubt about it but the 
the pastor is more than that. We've even had people who have identified the pastor as Western Christianity (laughs) that, that, that needs to go into a psych ward and, and go through deconstruction to even have the possibility of being redemptive in the world, you know? So, so people see things in what you write that you didn't know you were writing when you wrote them. And, and that's part of the beauty of, of just that artistic expression. That's true about anything. And um, so it's, it's beautifully brutal, like Brad said. That's, that's actually words that somebody used for it, beautifully brutal. And, um, and, but it's not, you know, we don't do brutality for shock's sake. It's not that. It's like, this is so real. And if, if you knew our friends, you'd know how real this is. And, um, and it, it really is about a God who never quits, who never gives up on anybody, even if everybody seems to have given up. And Brad and I would both, I would add this one thing. Brad and I would both highly recommend that you listen to the audiobook. Um, it, it was done with a cast of voices. And so it's like theater for the mind. And it's a three and a half hour listen. This is a novella. This is not a full blown novel. Um, it's a, it's a small novel and, and you can listen to the whole audiobook in about three and a half hours, but the characters and the voices will take you and you'll, you'll hear it differently than you read it. Reading it is a value. And at some point, it would be a value to have, but, but the audio version is in, incredible. I mean, it takes you there just like a, a movie has a way to just grab you and, and dump you into a, a world that sometimes our reading we skip. And, uh, and so I, I would say that as well. What the hell were we doing when we first started out? Had no idea what we were in for Or what this was about I never knew I, I, love, I just love this idea of the pastor as the vehicle through which you kind of tell this, this story. But what, what is, was there a particular reason why you chose the pastor versus, you know, um, just the average person, a politician. Yeah. Or like, or just the average <laughs> Joe, you know, like the pastor is a very, I, I think personally, cause my dad might, you know, I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor and I, you know, I got a glimpse of, uh, things through, you know, his experience, but that's a very specific role within the church at large. So what, what, what caused you guys to pick that particular character? They're an easy target. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's, that's not very fair. But mm. I, you know. It does embody yes. some of the moral outrage that accompanies hypocrisy. There we go. So that when you have like celebrity kind of dependence and then it blows up, it really blows up. And so you could have someone who, who, uh, who abuses other people. But somehow when a pastor does it and they've been the voice of God or they've represented God or righteousness in some way, at least in, whether in their own minds or that of their followers, the offense is that much more dramatic. And it makes us less willing to forgive and to, to say, okay, if, any, if cancel culture is going to go after anyone, it should go after them. And, yeah. and if someone's irredeemable and like you are on the shelf forever, um, and, and disgusting, you know, and so, so I know that battle in my own heart. It's like, I disqualified myself. So maybe I should just go fetal in a pothole somewhere. And how dare I ever show my head again or say anything in the name of Jesus. Um, the way I got through it myself is, is, is I am paying forward the mercy I received in those moments. Mm. And, um, I can't think of another justification for me to, talk out loud, you know, <laughs> so other than you're, you're, you're loved. Yeah. Loved, loved. And so, uh, what we're discovering is that as people read the book and they have a, a genuine kind of, first of all, first of all, they come to hate the pastor because they find out 
what his fundamentalism has been hiding. Mm. And then as, as he begins a redemptive path, they find themselves realizing maybe if he can be redeemed, so can I. Maybe if he's, maybe if Jesus doesn't just like strike him dead, um, maybe there's hope for me too. And I've, we've not just heard this from people who were um, offenders and abusers. We've heard it from the abused people who are wearing the shame of the abuse and struggle daily with self-loathing and self-hatred. And it's almost like uh, the story of the pastor grabs them by the hand and it is, it, it is explicit enough, not gratuitous, but explicit enough to, to say, um, to, to match their stories and then to walk them out of their stories into a, into a sense of being, could, could I even forgive myself? And that, that's a toughie. Yeah. And we have to keep in mind too, that, you know, we, we created this institutional system that puts those women and men into pastoral roles that then have an entire set of expectations around them that push them into hiding that, that don't allow them to be human. So part of this deconstruction is not simply the deconstruction of a, of a pastor uh, who represents the church, but it's, it is to free him from the institutional expectations that had put him into hiding in the first place. Uh, and, um, and, and that we might discover that beneath all of that wait, there exists a human being who is deeply loved, but doesn't even know who they are because they've identified themselves with their own brokenness to such a degree that that's all they see. Wow. And um, yeah, so there is something really beautiful and necessary about and I think a pastor is an easy target in that sense because we've set them up to be. And, um, and it's that, if you think about it, what a hard place to live is inside the role and the expectations. And you just, then you, you know, you look at the statistics in terms of the crash and burns and it just, we have a littered battlefield full of broken leaders and we judge them according to the expectations that they perform in a way that we were unable to ourselves if we were honest. There's a sense of glee in it even. And I remember I remember really way back in the day when when some of the first televangelists were falling off the wagon in a in a profound way. And I um I mean, thank God I could see it happening, but I, I don't know that I could prevent it, but I felt like something good. It was schadenfreude the pain joy of seeing and, and and i think part of it's actually valid in the sense of like well thank god we don't get away with a lie forever yeah no like really but to then to then have a sense of self-righteousness while somebody else has has crashed and burned that's that's troubling and it needs deliverance and um you know i'm not speaking crassly here about exorcisms or something but when you when you read the pastor um that i think that might be a side benefit that to the degree that we have that schadenfreude in our hearts that's an ugly thing maybe maybe the story can help us with that too yeah it turns our hearts back towards those who've really botched it um so that when we inevitably botch it we won't join them in the dung heap we created, you know, so. It, it reminds me, uh, I think it was Archbishop Lazar that told you, Brad, that moral outrage is a form of confession. Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. I love that line. Moral outrage is a form of confession. And whether you see it, you know, in the newspapers or you see it in the comment section of Facebook or you see it in the rhetoric of conspiracy theories and, and moral outrage is confession. Um, uh, we have a friend, Jamie and Donna Winship, friends, and, and, and Jamie just did this beautiful thing about two kingdoms online. And he, and he talked about 
how there were four major responses to what was happening in the world at the time of Jesus. And then the fifth response was Jesus and, and how different it was. But he went through them very, very briefly. The Pharisees who were like, you're going to hell and you deserve it, right? You don't obey the law. You're not keeping, you know, the rules of the church, whatever, the Pharisees' re- reaction. The Sadducees were like, you know, um, I'm sure there's a way we can make a buck out of this, you know? Uh, we're just going to accommodate. We're just going to uh, use the lingo of the dominant class, and uh, we're just going to go along with it and and deal with our fear by getting our pockets filled in the backside, right? Um, then there were the Essenes who were like, uh, we're out of here. You know what? We're going to just go and meditate somewhere and you know, you guys can all go to hell in a handbasket as far as we're concerned, but we're going to stay pure and holy by, by separating ourselves. And then there were the zealots. It's like, ah, oh, no, we're going, to, we're going to come with paratroopers and militia, and we're going to land in the middle of the capital, and we're going to take this country back for God. And, and uh, you know, and so, you know, everything is wrong, and it's, it's conspiracy theory, and and you've got those four major movements all happening at the same time. And here in the middle of it is born a baby. And, and Jamie referred to that little baby as a creative minority. And how the community of faith has always and only been intended to be a creative minority. And that can be one person. Or it can be a group of friends. And they can, because... They don't have the issues with damning everybody to hell or trying to just pocket their money because they're afraid of their financial insecurity or uh, running away to hide in the mountains because they, you know, they're so heavenly minded or picking up a gun and, and restoring um, justice. But in the middle of that, we get to be part of a creative minority who has an encounter with the living Father, Son, Holy Spirit where we have a face-to-face relationship with love and can begin to express that love into the world. And, and our goal is not to get power. Our goal is not to separate ourselves. Our goal is not to judge others or to protect ourselves by um, uh, consuming the ways of the world in order that we you know, have a sense of control. But it is to say, okay, today, in the presence of this love, today, how am I going to respond to the one who's in front of me, whether it, whether it be my grandchild or my child or an enemy, or, but, but not in an imagination, like only as it unfolds in front of me, because here is where I live, and this is where, where divine loves, lives in me. And together, we are going to find creative ways to live in this world and not be of it. Merry Christmas. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I was going to say, um, you know, people listening uh, just have to know that this is, uh, you know, we're recording this right the week before Christmas. So uh, when this comes out, um, we're in the holiday spirit right now. So that's, that's what it is. But one, As we should always be. Yeah, absolutely. One, the thing I want to end on, I think, is... Uh, this this concept of the pastor kind of being this amalgamation of experience and um, kind of shedding light to this idea of this unattainable uh, moral, you know, high ground. Uh, one of the things that made me think of too is there was a there was a guest we had on a while ago um, who I really enjoyed, uh, the Reverend Doctor Robin Myers. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he talks about I believe it was him anyway. I may be giving him undue credit, but uh, that's okay. Um, but he talks about the fact that the most creative pastors ever are is when they're in the seminary because there's no restrictions uh, in terms of uh, things that they're, um, you know, studying and, and ideas that they're, uh, you know, expounding on, you know. And, and then once... Now they're way more free than the teachers who signed a 23-page doctrinal statement. Exactly, yeah. And then, and then he says, uh, you know, as soon as they get a job, then you know, the, the restrictions are on because essentially now they're a business owner and God forbid they say anything that, you know, disrupts or 
offends anyone because their livelihood is, or the, is now at stake, right? Or the cash flow. Yeah, the cash flow. Exactly. And so it, it, it begs the question, you know, how many more pastors, especially in the United States over the last, you know, handful of years, would have potentially spoken out against things that we've seen that as Christians we should be concerned about, but didn't, you know, because of the pressure of sustaining livelihood? Well, do you think it's any different with the politicians? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Toe the company line, right? Or the bankers? Yeah, and it's, it's, it goes both directions too, right? So you'll hear people who've come through a, destruct, a deconstruction or a demolition, and, and it was like all the pastor's fault. And then you talk to the pastors, and they're like, we, we, got, cru- we got crucified just for going off the script that was expected of us. You know, yep, So yep. we end up in these really weird, mutually destructive kind of scenarios. And, all based and, on fear and shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to always come back to this. By, by the way, co- come to my school. You could study. You can get your MA in losing your faith. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, <laughs> losing yeah. my religion. Isn't that uh, Alanis Morissette's theme song for your school? Or REM yeah. or whoever that was. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I do want to do a little shout out for us because uh, we're, we're this very tiny university that has a theology and culture program. And... Um, um, but we're not governed by any denomination that in, that enforces indoctrination. So we have people ranging from from um, in, in as faculty from the Vineyard to the Eastern Orthodox Church, and then but our student body is uh, one third LGBTQ, and our our um, you know our students are an array of people who are pastors all the way to those who really are losing their faith and. And um, we're like, well, we're a safe place to do, to have those hard conversations, and we're not going to come down on you. So wow. ssu.ca, um, that's something you could look into if, if you're interested in uh, graduate studies, partly online, partly at our school in a two-week stint. So thanks for letting me plug that. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Cool. Well, fantastic, guys. This was, uh, I was really excited for this one, and uh, you guys did not disappoint. Uh, this is long overdue. So thank you guys so much for coming on the show and, and sharing uh, your latest project. Um, if people want to go get it, what's, where's the easiest place uh, to, to find the book and to find the, the audio uh, play, as it were? Uh, I would say fastest and easiest right now is Amazon. Perfect. Yep. And uh, I know some people have... Um, um, uh, philosophical issues with Amazon right now. I do want to say that as an author, um, they have helped us not get so beat up by publishing companies and, and really empowered authors to have a first chance at stuff when publishers might not even look at them or only give them 6% of the retail. We, ha- we happen to have an amazing publisher <laughs> and, um, but yeah, Amazon's where we're making it most accessible. And that is where you'll also find the audio book that we recommend and uh, start with that. Perfect. And, and uh, last chance to plug, uh, what, where's the best place for both of you to go to keep on top of what, uh, what you're currently up to and, uh, and, and get in touch with you there? Yeah, BradJersak.com. WMPaulYoung.com. But it, it won't keep you up to date because I don't keep up to date. So... <laughs> I mean, but it's kind of like a window through which you can just see me coming flying by at some point. And, uh, but it's just like, ah, nice. Oh, good. Good to see you too. Sounds like our blog. I'm on on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, but are you active on any of the social media ones, Paul? Yeah. And you can connect to that through that WM for William, WMPaulYoung.com. So yeah, it'll, it'll link you to whatever. Perfect. Well, we'll have all that in the show notes as well. Um, and again, thank you guys so much for taking some time out of your day to, to come and chat with us about uh, your projects and, and just some, uh, some thoughts that I know a lot of other people are wrestling with right now. So thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. Oh, thank you. Honored. Great to be with you, Paul. Get well. Thank you. And um, grace for the day. Yep. Love you, man. Love you, man.